Previously on The Dropout, we met Elizabeth Holmes, a Stanford dropout with less than two years of college under her belt, who launched her blood testing company, Theranos, at just 19 years old. I actually originally did not intend to drop out of Stanford, but I wasn't going to any classes and I was spending all of my time talking to VCs. And so then, logistically, it just seemed like a waste of money. Obsessed with Apple and Steve Jobs, she'd started wearing black turtlenecks and recruiting heavily from her hero's company. I left 15,000 shares at Apple, but say la vie, life continues on. But one by one, those Apple recruits, including Avi Tavanian, Steve Jobs' right-hand guy, had been dropping like flies. So you were done with Theranos. I had seen so many things that were bad go on. I would never expected anyone would behave the way that she behaved as a CEO. And believe me, I worked for Steve Jobs. I saw some crazy things. The business was also running out of cash. Okay, so you knew that the company was short on cash? Yes, yeah. But Elizabeth was about to find a solution to all of those problems. From ABC Radio and Nightline, this is The Dropout. Episode 2, The Enforcer. When did Sonny Balwani join the company? I, I thought in about September of 2009, or August of 2009, that's from memory. In 2009, Elizabeth Holmes found herself in a precarious place. Her company was now a few years old. She had an office and employees, even though many of the Apple recruits had left, and a big mission to fulfill. What Elizabeth didn't have was the money to make it happen. She says she was considering at this point going out and doing an equity raise, essentially trying to find new investors to buy into her company. The trouble with that was timing. This was in the midst of the Great Recession. Even companies that had been around for generations were struggling to get loans, and many were going out of business. It was something I was covering regularly for CNBC, like the day Lehman Brothers went under. Lehman Brothers could withstand the test of time through two world wars, through the Great Depression, and that now a credit crisis has brought it to its knees. So, Meredith, But unlike so many others, Elizabeth had an ace up her sleeve, a white knight with deep pockets. So the uh, company was low on the cash, and, and I knew this mission and what the company was trying to do uh, was paramount. Uh, so I um, offered to help the company, uh, and I ended up giving a $13 million personal loan. And uh, uh, it was interest-free. Uh, it was a good-faith loan. That's Ramesh Balwani. He goes by Sunny. He's a former software executive who sold his company just before the dot-com bubble burst and made millions. He'd worked at Lotus and Microsoft, and in mid-2009, he cut Theranos a massive check. But Sunny wasn't just offering a lifeline. He was also joining Theranos as an employee. After that, six months later, when I had decided that I'm going to stay here for the long term, and, and board said, absolutely, you must... Uh, they made me the president and CEO. And did he have any qualifications in the lab testing business? He did not. Or in pathology or anything like that? Not to my knowledge. So Sonny begins showing up to work every day at Theranos. Like Elizabeth, Sonny had his own kind of uniform, a white button-down shirt, jeans, and expensive loafers. He always smelled of cologne and became known for his flashy tastes. Sonny drove two cars, both with vanity plates, a black Lamborghini with license Vita Vici, 
as in Veni Vidi Vici, a reference to Julius Caesar's I Came, I Saw, I Conquered, and a Porsche 911 with plates that paid homage to Karl Marx's anti-capitalist manifesto, Das Kapital. He was a very striking figure around the office, but his presence confused a lot of employees, like Michael Craig, a senior software engineer. <clears throat> I always wondered why he was there. <laughs> you know, if she was actually had this, this, held this vision of really impacting the world, I was like, why did she pick him then? <laughs> Michael reported directly to Sonny. He was terse and he was um, a bit of a hothead from what I could see. There was, at one level, this need to assert dominance. And at another level, I don't think he ran terribly deep. Like, for instance, I remember at one company party, he had these um, uh, set of samurai swords in his office for a long time. And I finally was like, so what's your interest in, uh, in those swords and stuff? Because, you know, I'm pretty interested in, in a lot of that stuff. And, you know, he basically said that, no, it was just a, a thing. And I was like, whoa, like, there's not even the story there. There's just like some object that you just put there. So he has like that, that need to prove himself and also pretending like he's above everything. Sonny became the most important person at the company after Elizabeth. Employees remember they would frequently see the two conducting meetings in their big windowed office at the end of the hallway. The two were a tag team. Elizabeth would focus on the board and big picture ideas, while Sonny, despite his lack of scientific experience, would manage the day-to-day with employees and business partners. I would generally do the, the first meeting or two and talk about the vision, and then he would follow up on any questions that they had from a diligence perspective and um, provide them with that information. And Sonny wasn't afraid to get involved in the lab. Again, he had no real scientific training, but he would come in, roll up his white button-down shirt sleeves, and start working. Uh, when there was a shortage of people on weekends, and I would say, okay, train me, I'll do it. And you learned how to do all that? Yes. Okay. Life in a startup, right? Sonny was a hard worker, but employees say he was also developing a reputation as a bully, someone with a menacing presence. Here's Erica Chung, who worked for him in the lab. Initially, he would be, he would be fairly nice, um, but then through email, he, he frequently would get really upset about, about different things. And it was like, this is unacceptable, or you guys don't know what you're doing, was always sort of firing back at people and blaming people for different things that were going on and was always unsatisfied with what people were doing and how they were doing it. And it, it got to a point where it was almost hard to work for him because he would just get so angry and get so upset and was not very well versed in the medical diagnostic world and wasn't really well versed in the sciences. So would frequently say things that were just inappropriate. It became very clear to entire departments that it was he, he didn't understand really what was going on. Tyler Schultz, another colleague of Erica's, says Sonny earned a nickname around the office. It was just like pretty well known that Sonny was kind of the enforcer. The enforcer of what? Of kind of like the, these like intimidation tactics, I guess. According to former employees, Sonny's management style caused many people to leave the company. Again, here's Michael Craig. Did he ever get angry with you? Just like, you know, asking me to do something out of the blue and then looking at whatever I did, which, you know, generally speaking, I poured my heart into and then be like, oh, this is not at all what I asked for, you know, and like, you're like, what? Would he yell? I mean, he was loud. It's like barking at people, basically. 
And even Elizabeth, under oath, tried to distance herself from this behavior. Were there areas in which you disagreed? Yes. What were those areas? We, we disagreed all the time about a lot of things. Um, we're, we're, we're very different uh, leadership styles. So what was keeping this millionaire with so little relevant experience who was making waves inside the company in such a powerful role? There's one detail Elizabeth wasn't exactly sharing that might explain the whole thing. Were you and Sunny Balwani ever engaged in a romantic relationship? Yes. When? <coughs> Over a long period of time. Did you live together? We did. Did you ever tell investors that you and Mr. Balwani had a romantic relationship at the time that you were um, asking them to invest in fairness? No. Elizabeth, nearly 20 years younger than Sonny, was not just his boss. She was also his girlfriend. Even employees like Michael Craig had no idea. Now, when I uh, heard that they had uh, been in a relationship, I still am like, what? (laughs) Really? Yeah. Yeah. Were they flirtatious? No. Did you ever see them in a car together or going home or anything like that? She was very stoic. About just in general. She was monk-like. They kept it mostly under wraps, from investors, the press, even from some board members. You think it was intentional that they hit it? Oh, it was absolutely intentional. John Carreyrou is a Wall Street Journal reporter and author of Bad Blood, Secrets and Lies in a Silicon Valley Startup. He's been covering Theranos for many years and was astounded by this twist. Well, one of the, the first things uh, that, um, you know, sort of raised my eyebrows was when I had my first uh, long conversation with uh, the lab director, and he told me that uh, Sonny and Elizabeth were an item. And I was stunned by that. In fact, much of the publicity surrounding Theranos made it sound like Elizabeth didn't have a personal life, something her mother openly worried about in a New Yorker article. In the same profile, Henry Kissinger, who was on the board of directors, even suggested he'd been trying to set Elizabeth up on dates. In reality, Elizabeth and Sonny were very much together. They had met several years before Theranos, when she was about 18. Sonny was 37 at the time. I met uh, Ms. Holmes in 2002 um, in China. We were in the same Stanford program at Beijing University. The entire department knew about her uh, Chinese, her skills, uh, and so when I first met her, I'm like, oh, you must be the Elizabeth Holmes. Elizabeth and Sonny stayed in touch. Elizabeth's brother, Christian Holmes, remembers her talking about Sonny when she returned from China. I don't know how you would qualify romantic versus personal, but um, as soon as she came back from China, she mentioned they had a friendship. Eventually, that friendship developed into something more. According to public records, Sonny and Elizabeth at one point even shared a residence on Channing Avenue in Palo Alto, about four miles from the Theranos office. Back at that office, they would work long hours. And together, in early 2010, Elizabeth and Sonny were going after their biggest collaboration yet. Theranos was trying to land a partnership with Walgreens. They were hoping to put Theranos technology in more than 8,000 stores basically within a few miles of almost every home in America. This would be a huge break, and it would mean a lot of money for Theranos. We were interested in partnering with Walgreens because of the retail footprint. Here's Wall Street Journal reporter John Carreyrou. 
So you can imagine that uh, the Theranos blood test would have been uh, available at almost every street corner. In their first pitch to Walgreens in 2010, Walgreens says that Theranos claimed they had developed small point-of-care devices that, for the first time, could run any blood test in real time. Basically, what Theranos was promising, according to Walgreens, was a device that patients could use right at a Walgreens store to get an accurate result for any blood test, from STDs to the earliest appearances of cancer. They also promised they could do this for less than half the cost of central lab tests. And all you'd need is a single finger prick of blood. Elizabeth would become a master salesman, later boasting about the massive deal with Walgreens on the conference circuit. What we're doing in just pricing, the way that we are for Medicare and Medicaid, is saving Medicare and Medicaid hundreds of billions of dollars on an annual basis. And access um, for every person means rolling this out ultimately within five miles of every person's home. So we've started. So our work is making it possible to do any lab test from a tiny drop of blood from a finger instead of having big needles stuck in your arm and tubes and tubes of blood taken out. On March 22nd, 2010, a few months after that initial email, Elizabeth and Sonny flew to the Walgreens headquarters in Deerfield, Illinois. They sat down with Walgreens executives, including the CFO, and made a very compelling PowerPoint presentation. At this initial meeting, Walgreens says that Elizabeth and Sonny made the claim that the technology was, quote, viable and consumer ready, and that Theranos systems were validated under FDA guidelines. They said that the finger stick technology would be ready to launch to consumers later that year. Walgreens also says that Elizabeth and Sonny even claimed their technology had been used by the U.S. military in foreign government operations. Years later, when Elizabeth was pressed under oath about this claim, it would come to light it was absolutely not true. Was a Theranos manufacturer device ever deployed uh, in the battlefield? No. Was it ever deployed in a medevac helicopter? No. Was a Theranos manufactured device ever deployed in a an Apache helicopter? No. But in 2010, Walgreens had no idea and was intrigued. They struck an initial deal with Theranos. Before putting the technology in stores, Walgreens wanted to make sure everything was on the level. So they put together a team and brought in a lab consultant, an expert named Kevin Hunter. Kevin? Hi, Rebecca. How are you? Kevin and I recently spoke on the phone. When I was born, my, my family had a small chain of drugstores in Albany, New York. And my father ran one, my grandfather ran another. And interesting, it goes full circle. And I wound up working with uh, the largest uh, pharmacy chain in the world a couple of years later, right? And what specifically were you supposed to do for Walgreens? They specifically asked us to get involved and help them vet this opportunity with Theranos and to give them guidance about, you know, the uh, legitimacy of the, of the test and, and its ability to be reproduced and all those types of things. Kevin says they called it Project Beta. We all had shirts made up. You know, everybody got a nickname and I was called the expert. By the time he joined, he says he'd already heard some impressive stories about Theranos. That they had been wildly successful. Um, been, you know, the technology was being used on the battlefield, the Department of Defense. 
that they were doing um, in-home testing for people, and that also they were working with either 7 of 10 or 8 of 10 of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world. In August 2010, Kevin is working with Walgreens, and he and some executives flew out to Silicon Valley for a meeting at the Theranos headquarters. From everything he'd heard, he was expecting to be seriously wowed. That certainly was was one for the one that we'll, I'll remember for a long time. Um, you know, we ar- arrive, and the first thing you see is that um, Sonny had a Lamborghini that was parked right up front, and um, he was very proud of the fact that he'd been successful in other technology businesses, and, and that was his car. The building was locked by key cards and all that kind of stuff. We were met at the ground floor immediately taken upstairs to a conference room where we only met with Sonny and Elizabeth. And when, like, for example, we would break to go to the restroom, they would literally walk us to the restroom and then walk us back. So we weren't allowed to look around or talk to anybody or anything like that. When you say they, um, who's they? It was Sonny. Sonny would literally walk me to the restroom. Was um, he standing was, there? It, <laughs> Yeah, it was kind of crazy. I mean, he literally would wait outside the restroom door for me and then walk me back. Um, and so that was unusual. You know, I asked where the laboratory was. They said it was located downstairs. I asked when we were going to get to see it. And they said after lunch. And then after lunch, it, you know, it, it turned to, well, we really don't want to show you the laboratory. I kept asking to speak with, like, a chief medical officer or the scientist that was working on the test development or or things like that. And, you know, they said they wanted to keep the conversation at a high level and not bring anybody into it yet. Kevin says he requested other things in this meeting, too. For example, he asked everyone to take a Theranos blood test right then and there. And I said, let's all get our blood drawn and let's run some very basic tests here. And let's go around the corner to Stanford and have them run our tests as well. And they refused to do that. And when I questioned Elizabeth as to to why she wouldn't let us do it, um, she said that she didn't trust Stanford's results. And I found that really ironic for somebody who supposedly dropped out of Stanford and, and you know, thought very highly of, of the university to not believe their laboratory results. According to Kevin, the whole meeting felt like one big dodge after the next. But when it came to pomp and circumstance, Elizabeth and Sonny knew how to put on a good show. They presented Wade, the CFO of Walgreens, with the, um, with the flag that had flown over Afghanistan. Knowing what you do now, do you think that flag really flew over Afghanistan? <laughs> That's a really good question. I mean, it was certainly framed and, and, and uh, you know, was, was, was presented like you would see, but I, I have no clue. After the lab visit that would never come to be, they went out for dinner. But even that seemed a little off. We did go out to dinner at like 3 o'clock in the afternoon. It was kind of bizarre. We were not allowed to ride, you know, we weren't allowed to follow them. We had to just meet them in a back room. We get to this restaurant. There's no one there, yet we still meet in the back. You know, Elizabeth got her standard kind of green protein shake that she got and was dressed in all black. And Sonny got sushi or something like that, but but we're not allowed to talk to each other by name, yet Sonny drives his Lamborghini. So if you were concerned about people following you or seeing you or something like that, you know, why are you driving around Palo Alto in a black Lamborghini? It just just didn't add up. Did they ever show signs of affection towards each other in front of you? No. She never shared any of her green shake with him? (laughs) 
<laughs> no, he did not. The more Kevin saw, the more questions he had. He wanted to know exactly how Theranos planned to run all these tests. Did Walgreens believe that the Theranos technology would let you run multiple tests with a finger prick of blood? Yes, that was that was what was proposed to us. Their position all along was the fact that, um, you know, that it would be one drop of blood. And, you know, one of the documents that, that I have shows that they said they could do 250 tests. And, um, you know, and that was, that was August of 2010 on their letterhead. And was that possible? No. No. And this I was... never saw anything that would give any credibility to the fact that the instrument did anything at all. Anything at all? Yeah. I mean, on my desk sat one of the Edison instruments, one of their early instruments, because we bugged them forever to send us an instrument so where we could, you know, we could run tests on it and those types of things. And I begged, I begged them to let me crack it open and take a look and see what was going on inside the instrument. And, you know, it, it was like a computer. It had a little tape on the, the tamper evident tape on the back. And, um, and they just didn't want to do that. And it would run for a little while and then have an error and shut down or something. I never got it to do anything that I could, that turned out a, a, a test result that could be correlated with anything. The, the deception was incredible. Um, what would you say are the biggest deceptions? I think Sonny and Elizabeth's position that they that they could do this testing on one drop of blood was just was just a complete farce. And you know, one of the things I tried to explain to them was that you know, because I challenged them and said, "Look, I understand you know the tech startup environment. You can breathe air out here in Palo Alto." You know, you fake it till you make it to a certain extent. I said, but, you know, when you're talking about testing people and people taking these lab results, making life decisions based upon the results that you give them, you need to make sure that they're right. And they just blew it off. Kevin says he didn't think Walgreens should work with Theranos. And for a moment, it even looked like the deal was dead. But suddenly, Kevin says it was back on. Elizabeth had convinced Walgreens to stay in it. It was one of those things to where there was there was there was just enough belief or just enough hope, if you will, that it was that it was legitimate. You know, they really believed that they would put Quest and LabCorp out of business. And those are, you know, for those that aren't familiar with the laboratory industry, those are the two 800 pound gorillas. And and again, it was just it, again, it was something that people wanted it to be real so badly that, um, you know, they were willing to kind of take people's word for some of this stuff. It was just it was kind of bizarre. Despite what Kevin says were extensive warnings, the Walgreens team continued to move forward. Kevin says he was nervous and needed to get out. Why did you leave, ultimately? I really felt like at some point in time, there could be some guilt by association if, you know, word got out that I had spent a year and a half working on this project with them, you know, that I almost was, by me continuing to stay involved, I was almost endorsing it. And... And I didn't want that to damage my reputation. When Elizabeth started getting loads of publicity a few years after he left, even Kevin's own wife wondered if his instincts were wrong. In early 2013, I think she made the cover of Time magazine. And my wife said to me, she said, you know, don't you think you need to admit that you're just wrong on this one? 
maybe you didn't see the forest or the trees. And I said, you know what? I, I said, I'll go to my grave knowing that, you know, that this wasn't legit. And I said, it may not be today. It may not be next week or next year, but the truth will come out. Eventually it did, but that wouldn't be for a number of years. In January, 2012, Walgreens says Elizabeth and Sonny said they were on the right track with regulatory approvals and claimed their revolutionary technology was advancing and would require 99.9% less blood than the traditional blood testing services already on the market. Elizabeth and Sonny, according to Walgreens, promised Theranos would be the nation's lowest cost and highest quality laboratory provider. By late 2013, they started rolling out Theranos wellness centers inside of Walgreens. Two years later, they had 41 of them across California and Arizona. You might be asking yourself, how did Walgreens, a company with thousands of employees that serves millions of customers a day, not see this coming? I talked to Reed Kathrine, a lawyer who later sued Theranos on behalf of investors. Shouldn't Walgreens be held responsible here? Uh, well, they were uh, fooled, too. They had executives that had their blood tested in rooms with the machines sitting there by their side, and they'd have their blood tested, and then they'd go off and have lunch. And uh, in the background, there were a few tests that they could run uh, one at a time on a thermos machine. But they, but they basically made it look like it was being run on this machine in the room, but they were actually doing it by hand in the lab. Um, and so the, Wal- the Walgreens people got those results and um, thought, wow, this works. Theranos employee Tyler Schultz says many inside the company saw this behavior. There were even jokes about it. Like during demonstrations, the joke was that they put it, they would put the cartridge into the device and there was a glove there that would take it and go run it somewhere else because they knew that the demo wasn't going to work. That was a pretty common joke. In fact, back before the Walgreens deal came together, there were experts inside of Theranos who said they knew something was up and were flabbergasted by Elizabeth's claims. Experts like Ian Gibbons. He was named the chief scientist at Theranos in 2005 an extremely bright guy with a bunch of Cambridge degrees and nearly 200 patents to his name, tall with blue eyes and reddish hair with a refined English accent and style. Ian was recommended by Channing Robertson, Elizabeth's number one cheerleader, her old Stanford professor and a Theranos board member. Ian and Channing had worked together many years before. And I worked with Ian for, from the early days at Biotrack. So maybe 25, 30 years. And I worked with him closely at at Theranos. When did you first learn about Theranos? Um, I think it was like 2002 when Ian started consulting for Channing Robertson. That's Rochelle Gibbons, Ian's wife. She's in her early 70s with brown curly hair. She's soft-spoken but sure of herself. Rochelle says Ian's job was making the Theranos technology actually work. No easy task. If anyone could do this technology, it was Ian. Rochelle, who is a scientist herself, as well as a patent attorney, says her husband was initially apprehensive to talk about work because of the secretive environment at Theranos. Elizabeth was isolating him. 
Prob probably everyone else too, but he didn't know that. He, most scientists are really social and they can't wait to, t when you get a good result, you, you're all over the place with it. You know, you want everyone to know. And there was none of that at, at Theranos. Rochelle says Ian knew, as Theranos was closing in on its deal with Walgreens, that none of the Theranos technology worked yet. The machines, quite simply, weren't giving accurate results. She was talking about how she was improving on current technology. And we couldn't figure out what that technology she was talking about. It just became falser and falser. Elizabeth may have been selling a fully realized product, but Rochelle says that pitch was more fantasy than reality. Regardless, Ian went to work every day trying to make it work, while Elizabeth would frequently be out of office, peddling her product to investors, marketers, and board members. Rochelle says the more Ian saw, the more he thought the company was misrepresenting itself, committing fraud in his eyes, even putting people's lives at risk. Ian felt like people's lives were on the balance, and uh, along with his own scientific integrity. So he was just deeply distraught. And he went to talk to Channing and, in confidence, and um, he told Elizabeth about it, and she fired him on the spot. Channing told Elizabeth? Yeah. And she fired Ian on the spot. Rochelle says, oddly enough, Ian was almost immediately hired back, but he was demoted, and he took it hard. Uh, what she had him doing um, was evaluating people, people's CVs that came into the company, and he hated that. Interviewing like HR. people. Yeah. That's not what a scientist, a director of assay development does. And that was true of other scientists. One of uh, the scientists, who is no longer there, was in charge of building maintenance. This was a scientist, senior-level scientist. That's spending a fair amount of money to employ somebody and not use them. Why do you think Elizabeth would do that? I think they were window dressing. Because, um, I mean, Ian was figured on the website as a principal, right? And he, has a, he really does a, have a, had a brilliant... <clears throat> reputation. And she needed scientific credibility. And Ian gave her scientific credibility. According to Rochelle, there was another thing bothering Ian around this time. While all of this alleged deception was going on, Theranos was the plaintiff in a big patent lawsuit. Ian was subpoenaed by the defense to provide testimony that would potentially put Theranos in a bad light. He was incredibly anxious about it, he couldn't imagine himself up in front of a court. He faced either perjuring himself and defending the company or openly admitting the technology didn't work. He told me that he didn't believe Elizabeth, you know, just because she's a pathological liar. So um, he really didn't want to testify because he was over a barrel. They would fire him if, if he didn't go along with the company's story. And they knew that. They didn't want him to testify. He was actually subpoenaed, so he had to testify. Even when he started at Theranos, Ian had struggled. He'd been diagnosed with cancer in his early days and had looked to the Theranos opportunity as a bright new chapter. 
But Rochelle says the lies and the treatment he saw set him further and further back. According to Rochelle, the pressure of the trial and Elizabeth's relentless intimidation tactics put him over the edge, and he started showing signs of depression. His big problem was that he didn't want to be unemployed, even if it was at Theranos, but he hated Theranos. So he was torn because he really hated it. Didn't want to be there, but he didn't want to be unemployed. Uh, About Elizabeth, at that stage, he was um, totally negative about her. He didn't have anything good to say about her at all. He just hated her. Um, She's a bully, for one thing. She bullied him. She made him feel bad all the time. And um, I, I used to say, why does someone like you give a about why someone like Elizabeth um, treats you like this? Uh, and he didn't really have an answer for it. I don't know. One evening, Ian came home filled with dread. Sitting in the family room of their sprawling ranch-style house with two enormous heritage oaks out front, he and Rochelle had a long conversation. She says Ian was supposed to meet with Elizabeth the next day. He expected to be fired, and he wanted to confront her. He told me how upset he was. Told me he'd never been as upset, and uh, sure enough, I thought that things were going to be fine because we'd see the doctor the next day and get him treated for the depression. Then, a horrific shock. Rochelle woke the next morning to find Ian had attempted suicide. Rochelle called the office to let them know he wouldn't be showing up for his meeting with Elizabeth. What made you make that phone call? Well, because um, Ian wasn't going to show up at the meeting. I know it's a little bit stupid. Perhaps I shouldn't have done anything. But just to let him know that he was in the hospital, wouldn't come to the meeting. Ian was rushed to the hospital. A week later, he died with Rochelle by his side. He was 67 years old. When Theranos reached out, Rochelle says it was in the form of two letters. One was the email demanding all the uh, intellectual property um, and any other lab books or things, the computer. And then the other one was a letter from their lawyer warning me against telling anyone what happened to Ian. How many years had he worked at Theranos? Since 2003, from 10 years. 10 years he worked at Theranos. Yeah. Did they send flowers? No, I expected, I fully expected something from them. And they didn't do anything. And and then the other other thing was absurd that was that they could think, thought they could sue me for talking about Ian. You know, they couldn't. I guess they were trying to scare me, intimidate me into thinking they were going to get me for defamation. But the defense that defamation is truth. And so, you know, I'm telling the truth here. I'm not lying about Theranos. What has this done to your life? It's, at the worst, it's come close to ending it. But... I mean, this is, I can't, 
People like that should be in jail. They should uh, not be allowed to destroy people's lives. Rochelle says Ian's warnings would never be heard outside of Theranos. He would die just months before the partnership with Walgreens came together, before the first Theranos Wellness Center would open in Palo Alto, and before the company would set out on a massive ad campaign, tapping the expertise of the most famous documentarian in the world, Errol Morris. All right, guys, let's do this. Camera's ready. Here we go. Lock it up, please. Here we are at the ground floor of something that is revolutionary, and we're part of it here. From the tip of your finger. Whoa. Oh, I'm going to try it? Yep. No. No. They're waiting for that moment of shock, the moment of horror. And it doesn't happen. Yeah, exactly. On the next episode of The Dropout, Elizabeth becomes a full-fledged star. I also heard she was traveling with four bodyguards, carrying guns, packing heat, and traveled in a private jet. As her technology is launched to the public, and real patients' lives are now potentially at risk. Being able to somehow justify in her mind that it was okay to put all these people potentially in harm's way. I I don't understand how someone does that. I just am unable, personally, to comprehend it. Elizabeth Holmes, Sonny Balwani, Tyler Schultz, Christian Holmes V and the Fourth, Noelle Holmes, Channing Robertson, and Errol Morris did not respond or decline to comment for this podcast. Some material, including court depositions, were edited for clarity and time. The Dropout is written and produced by Taylor Dunn, Victoria Thompson, and me. Our editors are Chris Garube and Evan Viola, who also created our theme song. Additional editing on this episode by Nick Bassetti. Our researchers are Victor Ordinez and Lane Wynn. Our artwork is by Teddy Blanks at Chips NY. The Dropout is a production of Nightline ABC Radio and ABC's Business Unit. Jenna Millman is the supervising producer, and Stephen Baker is the executive producer. Eric Avram runs ABC's specialized units. Thanks to the team at ABC Radio and to The Wall Street Journal's John Carreyrou, author of Bad Blood, whose investigative reporting first exposed this remarkable story. Be sure to subscribe to The Dropout Podcast, and if you like what you heard, leave us a review. Listen to new episodes every Wednesday.